Greetings and blessings, saints. Welcome to the Revelation Decoded Podcast. I'm your host and teacher, Gil Maza. We are going through an epic study through the book of Revelation, unlike any you might have heard before. Did the first century Christians understand the book of Revelation when it was first written by the Apostle John? You bet. They understood it and acted on it, and therefore they were spared the greatest tribulation that could ever come upon the Jewish people and the cataclysmic end of the Old Covenant. Think you know the book of Revelation? Come and see. Welcome, saints, to Lesson 12 of Revelation Decoded, Lesson 12. And today we're going to talk about the Apostle John and being in the Spirit. I'm going to finish off a little bit of the last lesson and then go right into the next lesson on this one. One of the things you'll find about this lesson, I think, is the added bonus of the fact that we're going to talk about be what the, how the Holy Spirit works in the lives of people. So that will give you a good idea of how the Holy Spirit actually functions in our lives, functions in the life of believers, because we're going to see how it functions in the life of Jesus, in the life of the apostles, and everybody else. So that'll give us, that's a good foundational teaching. So that's the added bonus, as well as continuing to decode revelation, so to speak. So let me start out with the word of prayer and we'll get on with the lesson. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise and thank you for your mercy and grace. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for looking after us, Father, and giving us guidance and direction every single day. We know, Father, that we've taken on a big project when we seek to decode revelation. But we ask that you continue, Lord, to walk with us step by step, scripture by scripture, idea by idea, as we continue to decode the book of Revelation, Father. And as we do, Father, we begin to really open our eyes to your word of truth. There's no confusion. There's no misunderstanding. It is just a dedicated study, Father, that allows us to not only learn your word, but also learn about you and learn about your character and your nature, Father. Every page is full of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and He is present every single in every single scripture, Lord. So help us to continue to understand and grow, but not just to understand and grow, but to apply, Father, as well. Regardless of the times and, and epochs and seasons of the world, we are to be citizens of the kingdom of God first. So I ask you, Father, to help us not only hear, but to obey. And also, Father, I lift up to you all those who right now are struggling with illness, with sickness, with infirmity, with uh, relationship problems, with any kind of struggle that's going on spiritually, emotionally, physically, and mentally, that your Holy Spirit would fill, bless, and strengthen, and guide, and protect, Father. We ask you that please bless tonight's Bible study also as we continue to move through the book of Revelation, Lord. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are going to be looking at one verse tonight, one verse tonight only, and that is Revelation 1, verse 10. Revelation 1, verse 10. And it's very simple. It says this, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. And that's where we're going to stop. Now, backing up a little bit to the last week's study, Again, what was the main point of last week's study? Well, that according to the historic Orthodox Preterist view, that the great tribulation that is spoken of by Jesus in Matthew 24 
in Luke 21 is already behind us, is already behind us. It happened at 70 AD when Titus and Vespasian came and destroyed Jerusalem and tore the temple down once and for all, never to be built again, even after 2,000 years. So it may sound very strange to most of us to hear something like that. But that view, the view that the Great Tribulation happened back then in AD 70, it was actually common throughout most of church history up until the last couple of hundred years or so. Now, many have adopted the future dispensationist view within, only within the last 200 years of a future happening of a future tribulation. Now, again, just to unpack that just a bit more, keep in mind that bad things are going to continue to happen while humanity is on this earth and we continue to have free will. Men will destroy men. Men will... We'll see people hurt. We'll see suffering and great evils happen. And the question might be, well, if Orthodox, Orthodox preterists believe that the Great Tribulation took place in AD 70, then where does that leave us? And I will answer that question. I will answer that question for you. But as of right now, most future dispensationalists believe that there's still coming a rapture where a certain choice type of Christian will get raptured, the believers will get raptured out of this earth, and the great tribulation, seven years of tribulation, or three and a half years, or uh, it depends on your view, because there's a lot of different views, will take place. Will take place. Some people believe people the church will be raptured before any tribulation. Some people believe it will be in the middle of it. Some people believe it won't happen till the end, and the church will go through the great tribulation. Now, Here's the thing, when the great tribulation of AD 70 happened to Jerusalem and to the Jews, no Christian suffered in that one, no believer suffered that heeded the words of the Apostle John, that heeded the words of the book of Revelation. Blessed are those who read and hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things which are written, the Revelation says, for the time is near. God gave blessings to the New Testament church and cursing to rebellious and unbelieving Israel, which had crucified the Lord and publicly called judgment upon themselves. If you remember in Matthew 27, 25, God's cursing of ancient Israel in AD 70 would match, would fit the crime. The punishment would fit the crime as being the worst they've ever experienced. And to call anything else the Great Tribulation is to downplay the significance and the immensity of what happened in AD 70. Again, remember what I said last week about what it would be like for the Jew, the believing Jew, to see Jerusalem destroyed, to see the temple completely, completely demolished to the ground where no stone was left upon another. And I realize that it, will, it may disappoint many Christians that this might be so. If the Great Tribulation is over, then the rapture is not scheduled to take place prior to the Tribulation. But the true rapture of the saints, that is the resurrection of dead saints and the instant transformation of those who are alive on earth, and that's in 1 Corinthians 15, 52, 
That is an act that happens at the final act of history. When Satan rebels and Christ comes back to judge the world. And that's in Revelation 20 verses 7 through 10. Let's go ahead and read that real quick. Revelation 20 verses 7 through 10. And again, it says, when the thousand years are completed, that is the millennium, which we're going to talk a lot about later, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out and deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand on the seashore. And they come up on the broad plain of the earth, surrounded by the camp of the saints and the beloved city. The fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, and there will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay, now that is something that has not happened yet. That has not happened yet. And so remember I told you that in Revelation up to a certain point in chapter 18, we say that is the past, that is history, but the final chapters are still yet to happen when our Lord's final and only return to come to come to earth at the end of history okay but here's the thing when you look at what's going on today in fact we're on the eve of inauguration of a new president and you might be on one side or the other thinking well you know it's this side is all evil and this my side is good and my this side's all evil and my side is good but honestly you know, the evil and suffering of humanity doesn't fall on one elected official or another or one political party or another. The evil that's happening in the world, the evil that's happening in society, from the upper levels of government all the way down to the lower to, to the lowest person, you know, whatever you want to call it. You know, that those people are still responsible to God. And here's the thing. I wonder if. Instead of blaming political parties, instead of blaming one person or another, we kind of think about what is your end time view and how it affects how you think. So my question is, are we in a situation where there are a lot of moral evils and stuff going on and people are going nuts and everything's going crazy and a lot of people, the prognosticators are going nuts predicting the end of the world. But what if instead of training people to get ready for a rapture, why are we not training people to be infiltrators of society and culture and the world as change agents, as agents who are keeping evil at bay, keeping evil from going too far in any direction from any from any place until the Lord shows up unexpectedly? And surprises us all with this coming. I wonder if the attitude of, ah, well, every generation since Jesus uh, ascended to, to heaven has thought they were the last generation for 2,000 years. But most of them, all the way up until this last couple hundred years, they weren't waiting to get raptured. They weren't waiting to get lifted up out of the earth and away from the trouble that was to come. So I ask if that if we are going to say this is the last the last generation and Jesus is coming in our lifetime what if he doesn't so now we have left 
everything from government through careers through every aspect every social aspect of culture and society literally godless without christians in it because all the christians are planning to get raptured and we have left the next generation helpless that much more helpless against the evil of satan and the world sin and the and and, and the you know sin and the devil we've kept them that much more helpless instead of empowering them and putting Christians in key positions all over society from the top down, from the bottom up, to be able to stem the flow of evil, as opposed to an idea that, well, that's not my concern anymore. Let's just grab as many souls as we can, pile up in the Jesus bus, and get taken out because we don't have to worry about it. Well, for 2,000 years, every generation has had to worry about it and has had to leave something behind for the next generation. So that's where it leaves us. If there's going to be no rapture, if there's not going to be a seven-year tribulation bringing on all these seals and all these trumpets and all this bowls of wrath and all this destruction and mayhem and seven and four horsemen running around destroying the planet, what are we to look forward to? Well, it's very simple. Very simple. That is, we are to work the kingdom of God on this earth every second of every minute of every hour of every day, week, month, and year until one day, boom, he shows up. Jesus appears and shows up at the end of history. We're all caught by surprise. Those that believe in him, it's a good surprise. Those that do not believe in him is a horrific surprise. Because they literally got caught with their hand in the cookie jar, with their caught with their pants down. In the middle of the night, the crashing of glass where thieves are breaking into your house. That is the worst kind of surprise to have. But that's what we should be doing. That's where it leaves us. And is that a hopeless situation? No. In fact, it's more hopeful, actually, to say... Let's continue to work hard in every aspect of society to make this a better world for our fellow man as Christians, as citizens of the kingdom, not Democrat or Republican, not conservative or liberal. That God doesn't care an ounce, one iota of what those are. All he's concerned with is that you at one point made the decision in your heart to become a citizen of the kingdom of God, which is on this earth already. The kingdom of God is among you, Jesus said many, many, many times already. We are to act in the interest of the kingdom of heaven before we act in the interest of whatever floats your boat or fancy on this earth. So that's what we have to look forward to. And I don't think it's a bad thing. If I'm to work my butt off to try to Feed my fellow man, clothe my fellow man, help my fellow man, lift them up from the from the pit, lift them up from the mud, get them to, to be able to take care of themselves and fend for themselves and make a good life for themselves one way or the other with my life. How is that a bad thing? As opposed to saying, well, get Jesus or get left behind. We're all going to sit and wait for the rapture to come hit. And so why would people work on a house that's going to be set on fire soon? They wouldn't. They wouldn't. And so I think the biggest, one of the biggest and major philosophical differences between future dispensationalists and the orthodox preterist 
is that the Orthodox Preterist says, we got some work to do and we're to be doing the kingdom work. We're, we're to be about our father's business until he shows up out of nowhere by surprise. No way you could look, you could be able to predict it or schedule it or anything. Boom, he shows up and guess what? The boss catches you work in the middle of working, right? And like I've always said that. I've always said that my favorite thing in the ever in, in work is for the boss to catch me working. Because if he catches me asleep, he catches me sloughing off, then I'm in trouble. But that's what we want. That's what we look for, have to look forward to. If we have this escapist mentality that we just want to let it all go to hell in a handbasket and we just want to get taken out of here, then I think we have made a mistake. We have made a tragic spiritual mistake because we have work to do on this planet until the day we die, which is more likely to happen before the Lord returns, as it has for 2,000 years, than for the Lord to come back in the middle of life when he can just rapture you away, take you, beam you up out of this planet so you don't have to worry about it anymore. Death comes to us all quick enough anyway. I hope that makes sense. So that's the point I'm trying to make from last week's study till today is that until the Lord gets back, Christians must be into being about our father's business and putting the hand to the plow. Why? Because the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. We must remain on God's earth as his delegated priests and his intercessors as agents of his judgment in history, preaching the gospel, applying God's law to every area of life, infiltrating, appropriating science, medicine, education, technology, politics, and every aspect of social and cultural life. And I said this last week, what can the world say and do if we decide to live for God 100%. What could they possibly take away from us for living a full obedient life to Jesus in spite of the sin, corruption, and evil around us? Will they torture us? Will they murder us? Will they crucify us? Will they feed us to wild beasts? Will they light us up like candles while we're still alive? Will they take away manger scenes from the malls and from our front yards? Will they outlaw prayer in school and in our Bibles? Well, again, the world has done this to believers for 2,000 years. Remember, saints, that there have been more martyrs for the Christian faith in this century than all the other centuries put together since our Lord's ascension to heaven. That is true fact. America has no concept or clue of what it means to truly suffer for their faith compared to the 1800 years of the, that the faith of Jesus Christ, faithful believers have had to strive and struggle and survive just to get us until here today. Now, do you really believe that this all caught God by surprise? Think about that. Do you think this is all this is happening is outside of the purview and sovereignty and will of God? Absolutely not. 
but we have become so self-centered in America. We have decided that it is America and what happens here that dictates what how revelation plays out. Since when? Where is that in the Bible? That what happens in the United States is an indicator of what happens or how revelation plays out. Keep in mind right now that we have all these Christian men and women, good Christian men and women, making false prophecies and false predictions every single day. I know I have personal Christian friends that made false prophecies concerning this election and said that God told them, that the Holy Spirit told them directly. Now, I'm not going to confront them with that or call them to their face a false prophet. I would hope that they figure that out and repent for it because they're doing such good work for the kingdom now. They are witnessing. They are out there bringing people to the kingdom of God. But I have heard them say that. God told me this is what's going to happen. Over and over and over and over again. I can't tell you how many messages I got about that. I can't tell you how many videos with priests, not priests, but pastors and ministers and all kinds of people telling me, oh, God has ordained this result for the election. Well, it didn't happen. Technically, according to the Bible, if you say God spoke to you, and you make a prediction and it does not come to pass, God says, guess what? You are a false prophet. And that's a, that goes the same for all the other people who have predicted endlessly the return of Jesus. For 2,000 years, they have been wrong 100% of the time. And so it's difficult because many of those people are loved and trusted and respected Bible teachers. Or their loved and respected brothers and sisters in Christ that presume to speak a word from God that did not come to pass. They need to repent in their hearts. I, don't, I can't judge them. You can't judge them. I'm, I'm not, and they're not the only ones. I've made mistakes. I've said wrong things before. And we need to repent of that. But keep that in mind, because when you approach the book of Revelation, the way that we're approaching it right now, what we're trying to do is undo whatever's in there for the moment and just focus on what the scriptures teach. And if we do that, then when we look around at the world, Everything that's going on, that, that you, whether you think it's nightmarish or you think is the best, is great, it does not matter. Because the focus is on the kingdom of God and what we're doing as citizens of the kingdom of God to move the kingdom forward inch by inch, centimeter by centimeter, as it were. It does not matter. We have to ask ourselves, are we on the right side of God's will? And the answer is very easy. It's not nebulous. It's not unknown. How can I know if I'm doing God's will? Trust me. You know. You know. Because we like to say God has a plan, but he just doesn't let us know what the plan is. Well, no, he doesn't work that way. The plan is you can make your free will decisions every single day how you decide to make them. The only thing is, you have to make them based on 
your walk and love and obedience to the word of God and what he says is right. That's the plan. It's nothing oblivious or dark or unknown. He's told us real simple, real simple. You can make your decisions. Just take me with you. You can make your decisions. Just base them on the truth of God's word. Whatever you decide to do, do what God says to do in his Bible, which is very clear. There's nothing nebulous about that. We like to say it is many times, but it isn't. We are called as citizens of God, of the kingdom of God now, to progressively subdue the earth for the glory of God. And that starts all the way back in Genesis. We'll read these scriptures and then I'll, I'll answer some questions, okay? Genesis 1, verse 26. From the very beginning, he says, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let him rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So from the very beginning, we were commissioned to rule, be sovereign on this earth but to rule over it in a good way, the way he wants us to rule over it. And now that the kingdom of God has come upon this earth, we're to live as citizens of the kingdom of God while we're walking this earth, not when we die and get there. Okay, that's only a continuous of us being citizens of the kingdom. The kingdom of God for us starts now. It also says that the earth is to be made a footstool at Jesus' feet. Well, who's responsible for making the earth a footstool to his feet. Let's go to Luke 20, verse 43. In fact, I'll start at verse 42. It says, For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Again, Acts 2.35, verse 34. For it was not, it was it not David who ascended into heaven. It was not David, I'm sorry, who ascended into heaven. But he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Well, again, who's responsible to make the enemies of Christ a footstool to his feet? The earth a footstool to his feet. In Hebrews 1.13, I believe it uh, mentions the same thing. Also in, let me just double check. Yes. And also in 10.13. But the real clincher is going to be in 1 Corinthians. But I'm going to read Hebrews 10.13. But I'm going to start at verse 10. It says, By this we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, but which can never take away sin. But he, that is Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. So you see, he's already seated at the right hand of God. Listen to this, verse 13. Waiting from that time onward, for what? Until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. Well, let me ask you, saints, who is supposed to make his enemies a footstool for his feet? How is that supposed to happen? How is that supposed to play out? Well, that is the purpose 
of the church of Christ on this earth, of the body of Christ on this earth, to make his enemies, to spread the gospel throughout the entire world, to make his influence overwhelming into this world. And only God decides when that happens, exactly when that's going to happen. But we don't need to know when that's going to happen. You and I do not need to know when the time is for that. All we are obligated to do is to do our part in the interim. In the meantime, we are to move the kingdom of God the few notches we can in our lifetime to make this possible. And now, 1 Corinthians 15 verses 20 to 28 Now, this is a bit long, but bear with me. It says in verse 20, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of all who are asleep. For since by a man came death, that's Adam, by a man also came resurrection of the dead, that is Jesus. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each to his own order. Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until all till he has put all his enemies under his feet. When is that? Well that's now. That's not in some distant future. That is now. And who is helping, is doing his will, putting all his enemies under his feet? You and I, the body of Christ. You and I. That's our responsibility is to help him reign or have him reign until we, his enemies are put under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, listen to this. You want to know when Christ is returning? I'll tell you. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that is God, so that God may be all in all. Now, what does this mean? Then this means that there will be no earthly escape for church members from the progressively heavy responsibilities of exercising his dominion. What does that mean? That means that we still have a job to do before the end comes, before Christ's final return. We are all, we all have a job to do. Sadly, there are millions of Christians today who have adopted a philosophy of the future that teaches that most people will die and go to hell and then be tossed into the lake of fire for eternity. Revelation 20. And nothing the church can do will be able to overcome their resistance to the gospel. Do you see what's, what's being said there? So many Christians now believe that there are going to be just millions of people that are literally going to hell in a handbasket anyway. They'll never come to faith. Therefore, the gospel having failed... For the most part, those people. And let me share a little secret with you. God does not fail. His word does not fail. 
But that's what a lot of people believe. Might as well just let it go. The worse it gets, the better it is for us. Jesus will come that much sooner. The rest of the world can just go to hell. I mean, I don't mean to be so literal, but that's what the thought is. And hey, we'll be okay. We'll be in heaven just looking down and looking at the carnage. No problem. That's not the gospel. That's not the hope that Jesus Christ came to present to all of humanity on this earth, okay? The Holy Spirit will just never be able to change the hearts of the majority of mankind. They will inevitably perish with over 5 billion people alive today and with billions more to be born in the next 40 years. This is a very tragic and pessimistic view of the future, wouldn't you say? Yet today's Christians prefer to believe in this horrific scenario rather than to believe in the growth of the church and the triumph of the gospel, for such a triumph would place a tremendous responsibility on those who call themselves Christians. What does that mean? What this is saying is that a lot of people would rather relieve themselves of the responsibility of this world, of the gospel, of the kingdom of God for others to be able to say, just beam me up, Lord. They get what they deserve. I'm, I'm done. I'm kind of done. I'll talk to people if it's right, if it's what they're willing. I'll, I might share, I might not. As long as I'm covered, for the most part, it takes away the responsibility because you, if you say, like I am saying, that there is no rapture in the coming in the future, now, guess what? We are all faced with the responsibility of <laughs> furthering and walking in and sharing and fulfilling the kingdom of God on this earth till the day we die. Now, could the Lord return during this time? Yes. I believe there is nothing left to happen in history for Jesus to return at this point. I think I call it the age of grace. I don't think there has to be a timeline of events. I don't think there has to be a new temple. I don't think there has to be anything else. The Lord Jesus can come in the middle of this lesson. But if he doesn't, then I have to wake up tomorrow morning and walk the walk of faith and live as a citizen of the kingdom of God, regardless of who's president, regardless of who's in office. It makes no difference whatsoever. Sure. People, whoever's in office does affect the rest of society and the decisions they make and everything else, and that's fine. People have had to deal with that since the beginning of time. Since the first time they had a king, since the first time they had rulers, since the first time they had a government. People have had to go from sometimes getting what they want to sometimes not getting what they want and still going through history. None of that... Regardless of how you feel about the election, regardless of how you feel about anything else, none of that excuses us from being citizens of the kingdom of God. So we, if the rapture is not coming anytime soon, guys, we have the obligation to make sure that the next generation is well equipped and entrenched in society so that they can stem the flow of evil, so they can practice fairness, equality, justice, righteousness, to make sure that everybody that we possibly can 
can get that wants a fair shake gets a fair shake. That's what the goal should be. But if we decide to say, well, this is the generation Jesus is coming, the rapture is going to come take me away, this is not my concern anymore, then you have a problem. Then we have a problem. But what if he doesn't? Then are we going to leave the next generation so helpless, so far from Christ, so far from the gospel? And by the way, the Lord, God's going to find a way to take care of that anyway in spite of us. But that doesn't excuse us from our obligation to do our part. And when you don't do your part, that's where the confusion and struggle and walking around wondering what's going to happen next and get overwhelmed by fear and anxiety and frustration. Of course you are. Because like the Jewish people in the days of Jesus, they placed their faith on a human being in power to give them what they wanted. But God sent the Messiah to show them what God wanted them to do. Hence, the responsibility to God and to the kingdom came before their whatever they thought they wanted or needed. Remember, they wanted a man, a human being, to change the world to please them. God wants human beings to change so that they can change the world for God. And be better people and make and, and, and reach more people and better the lives of others. That's the difference. So today, ask you might ask yourself the same question. Am I hoping for a human Messiah to make the world a better place for me? Or is God changing me so that I can make a better place for everyone else until the day he shows up? That's the major difference between a futuristic worldview that says... The worse the world gets, the better for me. As opposed to, uh-uh, I'm in the trenches, I'm in the fight, and I'm in the kingdom of God to, to up until my neck, until the day I die or he shows up. That's the difference in philosophy right there. As almost as if, it, it is almost as if we would rather see billions of people perish eternally than to admit to ourselves that we as Christians will be called upon to take responsibility in this world in the areas many Christians call secular. See, we divide the world by secular or religious. God doesn't. To God, it all belongs to Him. All of it. So we say, oh, that, that piece of world isn't God's. <laughs> Those people don't belong to God. But guess what? As far as God's concerned, it all belongs to him. And it is all within his reach. And it is all within his will, one way or the other. And so we, are, as, as human beings, as Christians, can't sit there and say, oh, well, you know, I belong to God. My church belongs to God. My fellow church members belong to God. But those people don't. I'm sorry. God's, in God's mind, they do belong to him. They don't know it. They may not realize it. And eventually they'll come to understand it, unfortunately, when, they go, when, when they're in hell. But it all belongs to him. All of it. Every last part. The churches of the first century were on the brink of the greatest tribulation of all time. Many would lose their lives. They would lose their families. They lose their possessions. But John writes to tell the churches that the tribulation is not a death, but a 
birth. It would be a prelude to the establishment of the worldwide kingdom of God. He shows them the scene on the other side, and that is the inevitable victory celebration of the Church of God triumphant on this earth. Think about it for a moment. For the Jews that did not believe, this horrific event of seeing Jerusalem destroyed and the temple completely, completely floored to the ground, no, one, no stone left upon another, to them it would be horrific. And to the Christian believers, the Christian Jews, it was also. But if God had not done that, that would not have caused them to have to leave Jerusalem and then spread across the entire world to witness and to preach the gospel to, the, to, to all people for all time. Hence, the Great Commission. The Great Commission in Matthew 28. And I just thought of this. It's not in your outline. But Matthew 28 this is the Great Commission. Jesus, in verse 18, in Matthew 28, verse 18. Then Jesus came and spoke to them and said, All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. See, people still think that that still is yet to happen. That that's not going to happen till the end of time. But he says, All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. It has been given. It's already a done deal. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them all, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So the responsibility for the Christian church is not to just batten down the hatches and prepare for a rapture so that the rest of the world can experience all these seals and trumpets and bowls of wrath and all this vengeance and blood and fire and smoke and brimstone and calamity and disaster? No. We are to be fighting the good fight of faith until he tells us we're done. Until he says we're done. And that is most likely going to be at our death or at his second and his final return in, in history. Okay. Now, Back in Nero's Circus Maximus, that is the, the, the Emperor Nero, the worst emperor that ever lived. He was called the Beast. The scene of this bloody and revolting slaughter of Christians by wild beasts, by crucifixion, by sword, by fire. In that arena in Rome, there is a, a stone obelisk, a stone structure which serves as a silent witness to the valiant conduct of all the brave saints who endured tribulation and counted everything as lost for the sake of Christ. The bestial and satanic Nero and his henchmen have long passed away from history into their eternal judgments or rewards. But this obelisk, this statue still stands in the center of the great square in front of St. Peter's Basilica. Chiseled on base are these words, taken from the Overcoming Martyrs Hymn of Triumph. It says, Christus Vincit, Christus Reonet, Christus Imperit, which when you interpret that, it says, Christ is conquering, Christ is reigning, Christ rules over all. And that's the present tense. It means it's still true. It was true then, and 2,000 years later, it is still true true now. Christ is still conquering, Christ is still reigning, and Christ still rules over all. 
Let me ask you, saints, what has changed since then till now? Nothing except our focus, our purpose, and our expectations of what it means to live as citizens of the kingdom of God while being trapped in a pagan, unbelieving, lost, and fallen world. And while any human being can find a way to survive this world and live within its framework, built on human ideology, human philosophy, and a materialistic worldview, the problem is that each one of these can only encapsulate and address just a small percentage of the entire cosmos, that is, of the entire picture of everything, okay, that God has prepared and God has set. No matter how much knowledge one human being can collect in their single lifetime, it is still only an infinitesimal speck of knowledge compared to the entirety and enormity of the universe. God is such a being that he has full and complete knowledge of every last bite of knowledge in the entire universe. And he is the only being in existence that can take in, can process, and understand the sum total of all creation. And he's the only one who can make fully informed decisions about everything. So while many, most of humanity can live and survive and even thrive in this planet apart from God, coming to their own limited, narrow, and restricted conclusions about life based on their own minuscule experiences, God makes it so the Christian living for Him cannot fulfill their lives for Him apart from Him and His Holy Spirit. Go with me to John chapter 15. We'll read these and then we'll, I'll open it up for questions. John chapter 15. Verses 1 through 11. It says this. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him... He bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them, cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. So prove to be my disciples." Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. So you see, just from that alone, what do we gather? We gather that the Christian life 
to be lived cannot be lived apart from the power and the strength that the Holy Spirit gives us to do so. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. We dry up. A lot of us Christians are walking around dried up, and depleted, powerless, hopeless, victim. But He says, if you abide in Me, and what glorifies God? That you bear much fruit and that you prove to be His disciples just as the Father has loved Him. Thank you for joining us for Lesson 12, Part 1. I, John, was in the Spirit in the Lord's day. Please join us for Part 2. Thank you and may God bless you, saints.